Hello, and welcome to the Influence Watch podcast. I'm Michael Watson. H.R. 1, it might be the most consequential piece of legislation before the Congress this year. And that's saying something in a year when congressional Democrats have already spent $1.9 trillion and advanced a fundamental restructuring of American labor relations. But what does this partisan Democratic proposal to turn all American elections into effectively copies of California's often criticized system mean? Joining us is Steve Marshall, the Attorney General of Alabama and one of 20 state attorneys general who signed a letter to congressional leaders that we will include in today's show notes opposing large sections of H.R. 1. Uh, thank you for joining us and taking time out of your busy schedule, Attorney General Marshall. Thank you, Michael. And I do appreciate your description of this legislation because I do believe it is one of the most consequential, and by that I mean adverse consequential, pieces of legislation that I've had a chance to review. Uh, so I, that takes us right into uh, right into the meat of this, right into the meat of HR one. Uh, I think it's important that we focus on three specific elements of the proposal that uh, you and your colleagues raised attention to. And, and these aren't, by the way, necessarily the the only. They certainly aren't the only three uh, changes that this legislation would make, and they may not even be the worst three. Um, but let's start with voter identification requirements. Uh, my understanding is that HR one would outlaw photo ID requirements nationwide. Absolutely. Uh, why, kind of stepping back then, why is voter ID important? Why do uh, Alabama has a voter ID law, correct? It does, and it's one that we've actually litigated on multiple occasions, including most recently involving COVID. Uh, it is not a novel concept, obviously. We are accustomed as uh, members of this democratic society to be able to keep a government ID with us. Uh, and the fact that we ask uh, our voters to be able to show it at a polling place is not a burden, and in fact, is something that we believe is important to instill public confidence in our elections. Um, so that, like, you know, just to kind of present, you know, to give an idea, like the other side says, you know, it's just such a burden to expect voters to uh, acquire a photo ID because there are a, a handful of people, you know, again, yeah, most they'll acknowledge, yeah, most everybody has a driver's license. Most everybody has, you know, they might have a a photo, ident uh, photo identity card to cash checks and whatnot, but there's still that handful of people who don't. And how do you how do you respond to them uh, to to those to those concerns? You know, we had the opportunity to hear that same complaint in litigation that was filed here in Alabama by the ACLU, and in that court proceeding, uh, the plaintiffs could not present any example. I mean, I'm saying zero example of an individual that was not able to obtain an ID. And one of the findings of fact for the court is that Alabama made that ID available to every citizen of this state. The other thing that the court was able to conclude, because there were no facts, is that by having a voter ID law in place, there was no discriminatory intent or impact uh, on Alabama voters. And so what we saw is not only the importance of having voter ID for in-person voting, but maybe even more importantly was the, the battle involving absentee ballots. Uh, if we look at those opportunities in which fraud can take place, you know, as the bipartisan commission from 2004 that was chaired by James Baker and President Carter recognized, is that that was the area that was most ripe for voter fraud. How and does, uh, for, for those of us who don't live in a state that has a, uh, a rigorous voter identification law, how does uh, fo does photo ID for mail-in ballots work in Alabama, or how did it work in the 2020 election? 
Yeah, it might it wouldn't have been for mail-in ballots, but actually absentee ballots for us, and there okay. is a distinction for us, and, and it's really twofold. One, uh, that if you're going to supply uh, your absentee ballot, you have to provide a copy of your of your ID, uh, and there's also a witness requirement to be able to verify that the person, in fact, who is voted and provided their identification is in fact the one who signed the ballot. And so again, another example for us during COVID in which that was challenged, uh, ultimately an activist federal judge who tried to set aside that provision uh, under the, the guise of COVID in which uh, the Supreme Court was able to stand firm and say this is not accurate and this is not right. And so we believe again that it goes toward that vital portion of voter confidence is it clearly we want individuals to have the opportunity to vote but we also want to make sure that the public has the sense that those elections are fair and they're honest and that they're accurate uh yeah yeah absolutely um now moving on another thing that hr1 regulates is what the other side calls voter per voter per roll purges um which my understanding is that that's just a pejorative name for the routine removal of people who have moved or, moved or died from the electoral rolls. Is that correct? It is absolutely correct. This is having an accurate voter roll is how it should be described. Um, and my understanding of HR1 is that it would substantially restrict states' abilities to maintain a true and accurate role, uh, a true and accurate role of voters. It would, not only for looking at voters that have moved away or those voters that have died, but even able to compare voter rolls from uh, adjoining states to make sure that individuals are not registered to vote, for example, for us in Alabama and Georgia or maybe Alabama and Tennessee, because the goal is to simply have an accurate voter roll when we begin our elections. Again, it goes back to that idea of the public having confidence uh, in the results of our election, and this is another simple way to be able to do that. And it's interesting, you know, we've litigated a lot of voting issues in our state, and we've never seen this challenge. And for somehow another Democrats uh, to go against existing federal law through the National Voter Registration Act and try to change how it is that we purge those who are no longer eligible to vote, um, seems more like a democratic power play than it yeah, is I was, actually. I, I was I was going to ask, you know, when when you, I was I was going to ask, you know, when you guys have had to defend uh, your procedures for removing uh, those who are no longer eligible. Um, you know what what do they how how do how do the other, does the other side even justify you know maintaining all these invalid names on the poll books? Yeah, you know, unless you're, you're Chicago Mayor Richard Daley, right? I mean, that may be the only person <laughs> that could come up with some reasons. But this is literally, it makes common sense. You know, we ought to make sure that we have accurate roles. It's the role of our local voting officials to make sure that our voter registry, in fact, is accurate. Uh, and again, it goes back to what I, I think I've harped on the theme of this call, which is having public confidence uh, in the results of our elections. And, and having an accurate voter roll is one of the ways to do that. Um, and then uh, moving on, uh, an issue that's very important to us at Capital Research Center, our president, Scott Walter, was uh, brought before <clears throat> Senator Whitehouse's committee uh, last week to, to, you know, to defend uh, donor privacy, uh, and then the whole notion of mandatory donor disclosure for, uh, for advocacy groups, not just people who give directly to candidates. Uh, Obviously, there's a, a history of, uh, of disclosure being used for, for bad ends in, in your state's history. No, and I think the, the Supreme Court clearly had an opportunity to weigh in back in the, in the 1950s to, to ensure that those that were 
members of a private association had that constitutional right of association without I mean, disclosure. The private, the private association being the NAACP, which has actually uh, honorably maintained uh, at least much of the way uh, it's holding that that uh, you know private and uh, uh, private and anonymous association are important. Uh, Absolutely, they, they, you know, they, they weighed in. They weighed in uh, in favor uh, alongside alongside the ACLU uh, in favor of uh, Americans for Prosperity Foundation in their challenge to California's uh, donor disclosure laws. Right, and and let's remember, you know, the ACLU is opposed to this provision of HR one. And what does that tell you? Uh, because it, it, and the other thing, let's see what the data shows us. It's interesting. For the Democrats, that you know, there's a significant advantage as far as left-leaning C3s in which uh, there are donors. It's far more than on the conservative side. But the reality is that yeah, we, our you know, the, our our research at Capital Research Center, we've tried to we've tried to quantify what that uh, what that discrepancy is in the 501c3 advocacy world, and we get a number between three and four to one that the liberal side is bigger. And the, the thing that we also know, though, is that what is also bigger is those uh, social media uh, combatants on the left that uh, want to expose those that are giving conservative causes. We've already begun to see some of that uh, already through social media and, and the liberal left trying to expose uh, donors to conservative this the, causes. This is the sort of cancel culture stuff. Absolutely. The doxing and, and to some extent death threats that have occurred as a result of individuals who simply support organizations for which they fundamentally believe. And, and so again, I guess that gets back to the importance of, of donor privacy, that you have these, these organized interests that want to use, you know, not respond to speech with speech, but want to respond to speech with intimidation, want to respond to speech with uh, trying to get people kicked out of their jobs, trying to respond to speech with other, you know, other intimidation tactics. And that's clearly the, the strategy of the left. You know, the one thing is that you don't see that uh, conservative voices being able to do the same thing because we don't believe that's right. You ought to have the opportunity to be able to donate to an organization that you believe in, that shares your values, uh, and not be subject to the threats of the left. And, and, and clearly, that has been what has occurred already. And, and to the extent that HR1 were ever to become law, uh, I think we would see it at a level that we couldn't even imagine. Well, that that pretty much lay, that that lays out the stakes with this with this legislation. How important, um, how important it is uh, to those of us who participate in the public policy process. And Michael, I think one thing that I can guarantee you, at least for me and my colleagues, that if HR one were to ever pass, you know that portion of HR one would be something that would clearly be challenged, along with multiple other provisions. As you said earlier, although we're talking about three discrete topics here, there's fundamental flaws throughout this particular piece it, of it legislation. Mandates, it mandates independent redistricting commissions, despite all the problems that have been observed with those, with those commissions and how they've been captured by special interest groups. Um, yeah, there Oh, well, gonna be, it's no, going to whole federalize elections in a way that's completely contrary to the electors clause of the Constitution. I mean, there's replete with problems that, that would be challenged. But, you know, the very areas that we've talked about here uh, would serve as a basis for a complaint uh, that I would expect to be filed the day after any kind of legislation like this was ever passed and signed into law by the president. Well, uh, we'd like to thank, uh, you know, thank, thank you for your work. Uh, 
Steve. Uh, we'd like to thank once again Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall for joining us this week. Uh, we will include uh, the letter that was signed by the Attorneys General to Congress on HR1 in our show notes at capitalresearch.org. That's our show. We encourage you to subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And if you have subscribed, thank you. And please leave us a five-star rating. Those ratings really help us find new listeners, especially if they come with a positive review. We'll see you all next week.